Right, hello, hello, hello. Uh, welcome, everyone. Welcome back to the fourth episode of the Pharmacy Podcast. Uh, been on a bit of a break, but... Um, yeah, well, yeah, well needed. <laughs> yeah, well needed break. So uh, I'm Hermes and I'm joined here, as always, uh, with uh, Mr. Leave. Um, how, Mr. How, are you doing? <laughs> how are you I'm, doing? I'm doing good, yeah, that's right. <laughs> doing fine, enjoying the lovely weather we've been gifted with recently, so... We've been out and about a bit, you've been teaching me some surfing. And you've been teaching me some tennis as well, so... so yeah, it's been not good. Not at the same time. Yeah, no, not at the same time, but we're back. Again, it's been a while, it's been a couple, couple of weeks, but we've had a good break, and we're back now with episode four. Let's get straight into it. Yeah, so I'm going to keep the inappropriate jokes to an absolute minimum. Options for D include Delaparin, Desmopressin, Diclofenac. The rules are, I'll give you the case of the week and let's see if you get some ideas. Ready to go? Good to go. Okay, so our patient is Little Wayne. That's L-I-T-T-L-E, not L-I-L apostrophe. He's <laughs> not- a 10-year-old boy <laughs> and he's being naughty, okay? So your next patient that walks in is Wayne, along with his dad, and Mr. Rooney. Your best attempt at being hip and down with the kids is by asking Wayne, what's up fella? He ignores you and starts playing with an anatomical model of an ear you have on your desk. So embarrassed, you ask Mr. Rooney what you can do for him. Wayne's been getting into trouble at school, he says. This has been going on for years, but I thought he would grow out of it. It started off with him forgetting a few things here and there, like coming home without his school bag or forgetting to bring his homework. He likes school, but finds the longer lesson tough is just to concentrate for longer, and instead he just wants to go out and play. Get him to his homework is tough too, especially if it's likely to take more than half an hour. He just can't sit still, even at the dinner table. He wolfs down his food, then runs off to play Call of Minecraft or whatever. It's just Minecraft Dad, or Call of Duty, not Call of Minecraft, Wayne interrupts. (laughs) Mr. Wayne continues. His grades have dropped as a result, and I'm worried he's thrown away his chances. So him, he's tell me what pops out of this presenting complaint for you. Okay, so I get the name. Okay, so it's it's Wayne Rooney, right? I get it. Any reason? Yeah. Uh, no, not really. I, okay. I don't know if I saw Mr. Rooney. I thought um, this was a um, Ferris Bueller homage or something. <laughs> have you seen <laughs> Ferris Bueller? I have. Yeah, Mr. I can't remember. Does they, <laughs> is that the is that the, uh, the principal? Ferris's dad? No, this. Oh the no, principal, yes. oh yeah, yeah, Rooney. Of yeah. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so what pops out of the presenting complaint? So. He's a little boy. How old is he? He's 10 years old, isn't he? He's 10 years old, yeah. He ignores you when you speak to him, starts playing with the anatomical model of an ear. I mean, I would do that anyways as a kid. So Does it quite fun, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so he's been getting into trouble at school, but he says he's been going on for years. He thought he'd grow out yeah. of it. So it's tough for him to concentrate for long periods of time. He just wants to go out and play. Getting him to do his homework is tough. And it's tricky if this is something that sticks out because a lot of the kids, you know, do want to go out and play naturally. But um, yeah. He can't sit still even at the dinner table. His grades have dropped. So it seems some, like some kind of inattention. Yeah. So it could be something like a learning disability, depression or... Um, yeah, that's a good show actually. I didn't think about that. You know, why has this behavior kind of gone a bit strange? I guess the kind of the key thing there would be that it's gone on for years rather than kind of a short space of time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. You mentioned inattention and our case of the week, Lil Wayne has got ADHD. Um, but you brought up a quite a good point, actually, about how what's normal behavior for a child. Like Kids want to go out and play. That's normal behavior. Um, but the fact that we'll get into that in a second, but the fact that's having a detrimental impact in um, a couple of different kind of walks of life, uh, it kind of makes it more relevant to what we're looking at this week. Why don't I give you the mnemonic of the week? Let me You let me know if it's crap or if it's any good. I'll be amazed if you can find a good one for this one. 
Yeah, so, so I, uh, you're right, I didn't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> totally didn't. I missed the bar by a long while. I used too much um, of a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this week, I couldn't find a decent mnemonic for ADHD, but ADHD in adults can often be misdiagnosed as generalized anxiety disorder due to the common crossover of quite a few of the symptoms, right? So with that in mind, here's a mnemonic to remember the symptoms or some of the symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder. And that mnemonic is Mr. Fisk. That is M-R-F-I-S-C. Yeah? <laughs> really scraping the barrel here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So Whoa, we're how many about... letters have we got left? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're talking about generalized anxiety disorder. So you're saying this is common. So it, it can be misdiagnosed then. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So ADHD in adults can often be misdiagnosed as uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Okay, so Mr. Fisk, so these are symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder, right? That's right, yeah. Um, well, I have no idea. It's not a mnemonic I've ever heard of, so I think you should just rip the band-aid and just go I'll for it. I'll rip the band-aid. I'll just yeah, because I don't okay, want to so... I don't want to waste everybody's time, me just sitting here being like, <laughs> hmm, not <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, M is for motor tension, R is for restlessness, F is for fatigue, I is for irritability, S is for sleep disturbances, and C is for concentration difficulty, right? Okay. What do you mean by motor Chi- tension? Ooh, I think that's kind of to do with muscular tone, so like a high rest in muscular tone. Okay, okay. So I guess they'd just be getting a bit tired. Is that where the fatigue then would come in? From yeah, Mr. So. Fisk, the F. Mr. Fisk, yeah. Okay, okay. All right, rate that out of 10. How would that... Good for generalized anxiety disorder, so eight, but very weak link. It's a it's a bit of it's a bit of a weak link to ADHD, so a two, but yeah. good for generalized anxiety disorder. So this is ADHD. In the name, we have attention deficit, also known as inattentiveness, hyperactive disorder. So these are the two categories of the symptoms. So you've got some inattentive symptoms to look out for, include like the short attention span, being easily distracted, making careless mistakes being forgetful and losing things, and difficulty organizing tasks. Uh, Some of the hyperactive symptoms include an inability to sit still, especially in calm or quiet places, excessive physical movement, excessive talking, uh, unable to concentrate on tasks, and little or no sense of danger. So kind of see the two are not in contrast with each other, but inattentiveness you think would be relaxed or elsewhere, but not necessarily at the same time as being hyperactive and running around the place. Mm Mm-hmm. So you have the inattentive symptoms and the hyperactive symptoms. Um, That's right. Yeah. So do you need to? So do you need to have some of each? Do you need to have one of both? Two of both? Yeah, that's right. So it's kind of based on uh, a couple of different things that we'll get to in a second. But ADHD, you do need both. Yeah, you do need the inattentiveness and the hyperactivity. If you just have the inattentiveness or the attention deficit, then it's just called attention deficit disorder or ADD. Um, mm-hmm. These can often be missed because the symptoms are kind of less obvious. Okay, so then it's, I guess then it's, that's why it makes it quite difficult to diagnose then, isn't it? Because it can be very easy for somebody to say, you have attention deficit disorder, if you don't notice one of the two symptoms, you know, existing or not. So um, Exactly. And it's quite a common misconception, actually, is that people assume that the child with ADHD will grow out of their symptoms. This is quite a shocking statistic that roughly two thirds of adults diagnose as children will still have symptoms when they're age 25. And 15% of these will still have the full range of symptoms that they had when they were a child themselves. So, Gosh, okay, so the symptoms do carry on until adulthood then. Yeah, in two-thirds of them, some of them will still be there. That leads on 
quite well then to predisposing factors. A whole bunch of psych stuff. Family history is is one that's quite an easy one to look out for. Ask if this person in the other brothers and sisters or in like the parents. There's also some other ones. If the baby is born prem or with a low birth weight. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's epilepsy present um, or if there's congenital or an acquired brain injury. So yeah, and also just reading off the the BMJ, so the British Medical Journal, there's uh, talks about some environmental factors as well. There's about 12 to 40% of the variance in twin ADH scores. So low birth weight. I think, did you mention low birth weight? So that, did, that'd yeah, be preterm yeah. birth, um, I guess. Maternal smoking, that has a quite a strong evidence for association with the ADHD. Um, mm. There's other, you know, risk factors after birth. So things like poverty or, you know, lead exposure, iron deficiency. This is getting quite specific, but also maternal alcohol drinking during pregnancy. So yeah, there is quite a few other ones like uh, antidepressant use in mothers. Also, there's mm-hmm. an associated risk there. So, so there is a few, but I think the the big ones you mentioned there, um, the the preterm birth, um, the family history, um, the brain injury, whether it be congenital or acquired, but also the environmental factors there. So yeah, and and the environmental factors kind of um, some of the, the the teaching that we've had on this has, has revolved around the um, epigenetic modifications that you get from these, and that just seems to be like the silver bullet. If you well, not a silver bullet, but if you don't know what's going on, especially for like psych conditions, mm-hmm. just say, oh, it's probably epigenetics, you know, and epigenetics controls more or less everything. Let's look at the diagnosis. So we know that it's not diagnosed in the primary care setting. So instead, you're going to refer to a specialist who do a full clinical and psychosocial assessment and take a full developmental and psychiatric history. And then we'll make a decision based on observations of the child or the adult. Depends who you're looking at. But a big point I want to say is like, like this is a specialized process. So when people say like, oh, I think I've got ADHD and or so-and-so has ADHD, it gets thrown around a lot without respecting the kind of effort that goes into a diagnosis. And it's not really something that you can diagnose, you know, like a Facebook quiz. It's like, oh, I'll find out if you have ADHD in five minutes kind of thing. You know, it's a bit, mm-hmm. it's almost a bit of a slap in the face for the people who you know, spend their, their lives dedicating to you know doing a specialist process like this yeah 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 and it seems to be kind of a throw around term and phrase that's used by the you know lay public as well and you know you you've got to give it you've got to emphasize and give it the importance it needs it's like a diagnosis and like a condition like anything else so a lot of people say that oh you know i've got hd and uh, it's great because it gives me all this energy and I can run around and, you know, do lots of exercise and then do lots of work and it doesn't slow me down kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But okay. having a lot of energy isn't the same thing as having ADHD. You know, they're quite, they're two very different things. If you have ADHD, you would only get the diagnosis of ADHD if you have at least a moderate psychological, social, educational or occupational impairment going on. So it's something that literally has a detriment on your life. If you're thinking that you're running around with all this energy and you can do all these amazing things and you have no detriment, then it's very unlikely you're going to get that kind of diagnosis in the first place anyway. So you probably don't have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been in a consultation um, in practice or in clinic where somebody's had to diagnose it? Well, that's the thing. I've, I've not been... Um, I've, I've seen a referral for ADHD in the primary care setting, but I've never sat in for the kind of specialist assessment that goes on yeah. uh, in secondary care. Right? Yeah. It'd be quite interesting. Yeah, because it, it must be quite a tough one because I was just looking, there's... And I think actually this is this is moving on to examinations and investigations. But 
there's like some uh, there's like all the criteria that you use for like ICD-10 or, or yeah but there's like some specific uh yeah so there's some investigations I'm not sure whether this would be in children as well but have you heard of some of the scales you use for ADHD so like there's the there's the Connors adult ADHD rating there's the brown attention deficit disorder have you heard of any of these I've actually not no so they're basically just scales that clinicians can use to try and you know make an ADHD diagnosis but obviously you're not going to use one of the rating skills individually to do that but you know they're just scores suggesting the presence of ADHD so it, it is a tough one to diagnose and it's um it definitely needs a bit more time so yeah referring to specialists uh, I think I think that's that's the best thing to do and you said doing the it's like social assessments as well. Um, yeah. So I imagine that these screenings are going to be used in primary care then to, you know, to to flag up or, you know, this is what exactly. we think is going on yep. and then refer in for the full assessment. That's then. correct. Yeah. 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 So should we move on to some examination findings? Do, do we do examinations here? We would not be doing examinations here. Okay. Uh, as a diagnosis will come from like the history and the um, full assessment by the secondary care. Mm hmm. And some differentials and things you want to keep an eye out for when you're talking about ADHD. It's associated with quite a few other psychiatric or developmental disorders like oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, uh, and possibly some mood disorders such as depression, mania, anxiety as well. So as the primary physician, you want to keep an eye out on these, but the specialist would be sure to screen for these too. But don't be complacent, you know, check for them. Ask about how the family is coping as well. And the the mood of the child and you know th this is what makes such conditions so difficult to differentiate as well because there's a lot of differentials but if you take depression for example investigations no differentiating test you know bipolar disorder no differentiating test anxiety no differentiating test so it just makes it so difficult you know to be able to pin it down and it's all exactly. just entirely history based isn't it i'm lit i'm going through the BMJ right now and I'm going through some of the differential diagnosis and having a look at the tests that you can do I mean very few so I'm looking at it says hyperthyroidism maybe a differential diagnosis which you can test for but other other things you know like I've just mentioned there you know psychosis no differentiating sets so, so so it's very difficult and again so many differentials does not make it easy to diagnose one bit you would have thought that we would have learned our lesson from last time when we did a bit of psych and we kind of psych we is how difficult it is. Yeah, yeah. it's it's uh it's it's a big black hole. And like we said, uh, what did we do last week? It was so long ago. Uh, well, not last last time. Schizophrenia, yeah, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's um it's it's just so tough, and it's all it's all on history. And uh, when you have to try and make a diagnosis based on history, it just makes it extremely difficult. Investigations then. Investigations, again, no, I don't have any investigations in front of me, especially, uh, not necessarily for the kids, ADHD and kids. I'm not sure if there is one for adults. Yeah, there might be. I mean, if you're thinking of differentials there for adults, um, we'll just briefly touch base on this. We don't have to go into too much detail, but there is a couple more differentials in adults. Therefore, there would be some investigations to try and rule out those differentials. For example, something like a, a urine drug screen, it may exclude the differential of, you know, having drug intoxication or doing a CT or MRI, you know, to rule out some kind of brain injury. 
Yeah, like um, Space Occupied Legion or something. Yeah, exactly. So a lot more in, in adults, but yeah, I, I'd agree with you, not too much in children. So you mentioned drugs, right? And it's something that you need to screen for as well, is that ADHD patients are actually at greater risk of substance misuse. So mm-hmm. just to make you sure, make sure that you check the signs for these as well. So we covered some differentials and now is the time to talk about treatment. So like lots of uh, psych problems, this involves like a mix of pharma and some non-pharma options too. The non-pharma options include kind of supporting the family to help manage the behaviors and also some CBT therapy for the patients as well. The first line drug treatment for ADHD is to try methylphenidate for six weeks. If this doesn't work to reduce the symptoms, you might want to try switching to lisdexamphetamine. And lisdexamphetamine has quite a long effect profile, so it might stay in the patient system for quite a while. And if this itself isn't quite well tolerated, you might want to switch to our drug of the week, which is dexamphetamine. So both lisdexamphetamine and dexamphetamine, we're talking about giving amphetamines to kids. Yeah, that's a strange one, isn't it? It's so weird. Yeah, yeah. Has the world gone mad or is there some sense in this maybe? And to try and get some sense out of this, we've managed to track down the absolute legend and director of teaching from St. Andrew's Medical School. Please give a massive pharmacy welcome to Dr. Alan Hughes. Thank you very much. I can see the virtual clapping. Hey, thank you. (laughs) Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for coming. No problem. So we have a little question. So we basically just discussed that we're giving amphetamines uh, for ADHD. But what would be great if you could just explain a little bit about the pathway and why we're giving this drug, really. Sure, yeah. So you, know, you mentioned it's kind of a, a strange thing to be doing, which, yeah, I, I get it is. But we have really been doing this probably for about 100 years almost now. It's about 1920s when these were synthesized. They kind of started getting used as kind of pet pills, popular with uni students, I hear, back in the days, <laughs> around about the sort of 1920s and 1930s. And it's around about that time when they started getting given to children that weren't diagnosed really as having ADHD because that wasn't a diagnosis available at the time, but they certainly were displaying the characteristics and the symptoms that would get them classified as being ADHD these days. Kind of interesting that they fell out of favour around about the sort of 1960s, post-World War II, dropped down in terms of their use, but then started bouncing back up again in terms of a prescription for ADHD, actually probably exceeding the amount of prescriptions that were given out post-war by about sort of 2004, I think it was, and started increasing in terms of prescription there. So massively prescribed class of drugs now far outweighing the use that they had at that peak in the sort of 60s, where they became really a major public health concern, really. Um, So yeah, we've been doing it for a long time, but why? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where do you want me to start? Yeah, I think it's important to just understanding on a really basic level, uh, how the drug really works and kind of the specific receptors it targets. Because I'm not actually that sure. And I'm not sure if the listeners are either. Don't know about you, Keshan, as well. I don't know how you how clued I, up I'm, you are. I'm not clued up on amphetamines at all, sorry. That's the right answer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just wink, wink. <laughs> um, so a bit about the mechanism of action, that'd be great to start with. Sure, yeah. So we'll talk mostly about dexamphetamine, but obviously we're talking about a class of drugs here that've got very similar mechanisms of actions. And they're all essentially going to insidiously lead to an increased release and elongated mechanism of action of uh, two predominant neurotransmitters at the neuronal junctions that are involved in. So backing up a little bit, the two neurotransmitters, so signaling molecules between neurons and 
and other neurons in this example, but sometimes between neurons and other cells. The two ones that we're interested in are dopamine and noradrenaline. Dopamine and noradrenaline are involved in a whole variety of different pathways in the brain. And the effects of the amphetamines really are to reverse a lot of the processes that would normally help us maintain these levels of adrenaline, uh, sorry, noradrenaline and dopamine within the cells ready to be released within the neurons themselves. So a little bit of the kind of mechanism of action requires you to understand that essentially dopamine and noradrenaline as neurotransmitters are usually packaged into vesicles, little kind of bubble type things within the neurons that are then fused with membranes and released out to act on cell surface receptors and stimulate the effects you'd expect to see. The duration of action of both dopamine and noradrenaline is limited by how quickly you take those back up into the cells that release them. So you've got transporters that take that dopamine or noradrenaline that's been released, put it back into the neurons, and then package it back into vesicles to be released again. And what amphetamines seem to be doing is triggering a reverse action of a lot of these pumps. So rather than packaging your uh, noradrenaline or dopamine into vesicles, you're causing a release of it into the cytoplasm, the intercellular environment of your, uh, your neurons. And then you're actually triggering the pumps that would normally take that dopamine and noradrenaline into the cell to actually push it outwards. So you end up with an increased release and an increased kind of activity of particularly these new two neurotransmitters uh, caused by um, the action of amphetamines. Uh, yes, get a little bit of involvement of serotonin in there, but with um, dexamphetamine, it's it's mostly noradrenaline and dopamine related. Right. Okay. So it's the neurotransmitters then increasing, being pushed out into the across the synapse in higher quantities. Pretty much, yeah. There's a little bit of inhibition of some enzymes at higher concentrations that would normally break down and degrade both of these neurotransmitters as well. But that seems to be more associated with higher concentrations. So okay. most of the effects of amphetamines tend to be about increasing the amount of dopamine and noradrenaline that's present and the duration that's present uh, in the kind of synaptic regions that you'd find in the central nervous system. That's associated with a few different pathways, but I'm not sure how much you've touched upon that or... Or no, yeah. of course, because, you know, I should be able to test you on this as well, surely? Uh, yeah, yeah, you should, but I don't think it's the, it's the right time because we might, we might uh, falter. <laughs> so. I had a quick question as well, if that's all right. And it's mainly to do with that. Um, you mentioned about the, the direction of the pumps. They're ac it's reversed, right? So the, the, but that's different to an SNRI, isn't it? So like a selective noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor, which prevents the action of the pump rather than changes the direction. Is, have I got that right in my head? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So methylphenidate or, or Ritalin, it would be more about preventing the reuptake rather than stimulating the release and kind of actively okay. pumping that out. So that's where really your your dexamphetamine and lisdexamphetamine would differ from phenyl, um, from, from Ritalin, methylphenidate even. So what's the difference between those two drugs then, your dexamphetamine and your lisdexamphetamine? I mean, your lisdexamphetamine is essentially going to be metabolized into dexamphetamine. So it's all about the rate and duration and the liberation of that dexamphetamine from what is essentially a precursor or product of dexamphetamine. Okay, right. So lisdexamphetamine essentially then gets metabolized in the body and then becomes the active drug. Yeah, so it's account of that balance of how... Um, 
how quickly you want to get your action. And that seems to be related to how well some patients respond mm -hmm. to dexamphetamine and lisdexamphetamine. If the low and slow release rates that you get with lisdexamphetamine isn't working, then dexamphetamine, which gets quicker to the, the point, might be uh, an, a more appropriate treatment. But the outcomes of patients vary so much with a lot of these drugs. It's, it's a real kind of issue, I think, with the treatment effectiveness, but also mm. the adherence as well. I mean, that's part of the problem. You might get an effectiveness, but how long patients can maintain taking the drugs and adherence is a big issue. Yeah, sure. So obviously you're getting a lot of, well, you're getting a lot more influx of neurotransmitters in this case. So so what are the kind of side effects that would be associated? Um, there is a few. I mean, I think the, the ones that immediately start presenting themselves, that, to my understanding, seem to limit it are things like insomnia and kind of changing in weakness the states that, that kind of follow a bit of nausea there's you know things that make it generally uncomfortable and, and mood changes that really kind of start to impact how people might engage to it and obviously for children in particular things that are disrupting sleep and changing that quality of life can have a big knock-on effect for them right so moving on from that then if we discuss a little bit about the bnf dose guidelines and let's consider the treatment pathway. So the first line drug is to try methylphenidate for six weeks. Mm. And Dr. Hughes, you said that is the kind of the scientific name or the drug name for Ritalin. Is that right? Yeah. If it doesn't work to reduce the symptoms, then it's appropriate to switch on to lisdexamphetamine. And the long effect profile that we spoke about because of its long uh, duration of metabolism, that's not well tolerated. Then you're going to switch on to dexamphetamine. I was just wondering as well, you, you talked about how Kind of these drugs have been used for almost 100 years now and the fact that they're still in use obviously shows that they are quite successful and the fact that we have different metabolic times going on in the same way that we have different kind of profiles for insulin allows us to tailor it towards like the patient's needs if that's right do you kind of see this changing in any way anytime in the future or do you think that it's kind of it's a hammer that hits nails keep doing it it's an interesting question isn't it because um obviously that link between now we're just increasing dopamine, we're increasing noradrenaline, how does that actually affect a change is quite complex. And I think the underlying etiology of ADHD is so diverse and broad that I think the way forward is potentially going to be understanding more the nuances of what's happening in the patients and their specific variation in how they're getting to a sort of hypotonic state almost with dopamine and noradrenaline and the essential kind of pathways in the brain to um, kind of correct that, working out what's going to be the best approach, whether it's going to be something that's more associated with that insidious release and that kind of uh, increase in release of noradrenaline dopamine like you get with dexamphetamine, whether you want to more selectively prevent reuptake as you would get with methylphenidate, or whether there's there's a whole variety of other drugs that could be, you know, selectively inhibiting the, the uptake of noradrenaline or dopamine or increasing the involvement of serotonin plus alpha-2 agonists. There's a whole range of drugs that are postulated that could work and help with patients in ADHD, but knowing which one's going to be effective and actually makes a benefit to the patient, removing the guessing game nature of that, I think will be the way this will go in the future. Getting a better understanding of how the, the etiology, the complexity of that can be matched to an effective treatment. So I think pharmacogenomics, not necessarily a huge increase in the number of pharmacological tools might be the way forward to get a better, better patient outcome for this. Yeah, that's mm. brilliant. And um, I was just just thinking as well. So we were discussing the, you know, some of the things we can do for these for these patients. And we talked a lot about the pharmacological 
things we can do but there's obviously non-pharmacological approaches we can take as well and like Keshan you were mentioning there some um, CBT and can do some behavior assessments as well which can really help um, just to interview the patient and just you know j- just seeing really what's going on I was wondering compared to maybe doing a CBT approach uh, and a pharmacological approach is there do you think one is maybe superior over the other or do you think they just both have their values and they both contribute equally just towards diagnosing it's a very interesting one I think they both got their value and I think there's mm. there's going to be difficulties sometimes isn't there in getting uh, particularly kids to kind of engage with CBT and behavior related therapies when you know a, a, a sort of treatment that, pa- that parents can at least ensure the children are kind of engaging with might be a different approach in adults obviously that that might change the balance mm. will be probably much more uh, in favor of them taking more control of the situation and you could see cbt having you know pr- probably being more of a benefit so it's it's an interesting one i think that that balance of engagement particularly with the patient groups would be quite different yeah yeah but ultimately i think we need both don't we it doesn't make it easy does it, it makes it very difficult um so should i yeah i'll hit you up with some management um with regard to the bnf dose guidelines for our patient of the day lil wayne um is aged between six and 17 uh you have to give him two to five milligrams two to three times a day initially and to titrate up in steps of five milligrams once weekly if required to keep the symptoms under wraps the usual maximum daily dose is one milligram per kilo and uh, it can be quite chunky, so you might want to split this into two to four divided doses throughout the day as well. Uh, interestingly as well, as Dr. Hughes has already mentioned, one of the side effects is uh, insomnia. And as a result then, for adults and the elderly who suffer from narcolepsy, it can be used to kind of treat that as well. Also, we touched a little bit on some other kind of side effects, but generally some of the contraindications that you want to keep an eye out for, because the list is huge, it goes on and on and on and on generally any cardiac problems, any substance abuse uh, in the history or, or any suicidal tendencies you want to look out for, you might want to think twice before prescribing these uh, these drugs to these people. So Dr. Hughes, you have the, as the special guest, you are charged with doing the fun fact of the week for us. Is that right? I think it is. I'm not entirely sure what precedent you've got for a fun fact of the week, but... <laughs> they varied. <laughs> yeah, from so week I can to go, week. I can go off piste and left field with this right, one. Okay, anything yeah. you want, take, take it away, whatever you wish. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm always fascinated when, when people see things that aren't actually what they think they're seeing. I think that's a fantastic kind of bit of kind of interest in the news. And there's been mm-hmm. a brilliant example of this just recently. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but essentially there was a bit of an uproar in uh, Krakow uh, where uh, someone was uh, very afraid to keep their windows open because they thought there was some sort of iguana living in the uh, tree outside of their building. And uh, they got the Animal Welfare Society uh, associated with this and brought brought them in and they found out that it essentially was a croissant stuck in a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Just of this fantastic idea of this woman that was in her flat, scared to leave windows open or leave it for two days because there was a croissant in a tree. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> How'd you mistake that for an iguana though? We, Do you know what I mean? Uh, can iguanas like, uh, colour like change? Remote, can, can iguanas can colour shift, can't they? Or is that chameleon? That's chameleons. Uh, that's chameleon. Sorry, chameleons, chameleons yeah. yeah. There is a picture of the croissant in a tree and it is admittedly very much a croissant in a tree. So oh, I've just found that online. Have a quick look. Have a look. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that's amazing. I wonder if somebody actually planted that there 
I mean, they, they speculate well, that someone chucked it out. Woman. <laughs> they, they speculate that someone chucked it out of a window to feed birds. But, you know, you want to see a bird choking <laughs> down a whole cross on. That's what size of birds you're getting crack of. That's so good. So I, I can see the picture now. And, like, it doesn't look anything like, it doesn't look anything like a, um, well, it's not a chameleon, iguana. Yeah. It doesn't look anything like an iguana. Kind of looks more like a giant kind of caterpillar, maybe. Yeah. Size of moth that's going <laughs> to come know. out of that at some point. <laughs> Yeah, was this... I'd be more scared about that giant moth. <laughs> was this quite big news then in uh, in in Poland? It must have been a quiet news day, but there you go. <laughs> They're just uh, just just scraping for uh, scraping for anything they can get their hands on in the news. Ends up being a croissant. That's amazing. So it says a woman with desperation in her voice called them to say that the creature had been sitting in the tree across the road for two days. <laughs> Everyone is scared of him, she told the authorities, <laughs> begging them to come and investigate. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's so good. I think that's, um, I think that is um, fun fact worthy, Dr. Hughes. Good, I'm glad. Definitely that that was a lot of really. pressure, even more so than talking about the drugs. <laughs> I think that ranks as the, maybe top two, because we've had some quite poor fun facts. <laughs> so I'm going to be Not honest. even going to, like, a fake top compliment. Top two and Rodeon like, team. That's We've only done four episodes. It's like, top two would be... In like the oh. upper fifty percent. So I didn't think about that. <laughs> I could say top one, so I was in a bit of a, a bit of a situation here. That, we'll send you a second place badge. <laughs> you can Yay, wear with we're number two. <laughs> right, guys, but that's all the time we got for. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pharmacy Podcast. Uh, thank you very much also to Dr. Hughes. We've really enjoyed his company. How, how have you found it, Dr. Hughes? That's been great. I mean, I can't think of a better way to spend my Friday evening in lockdown. <laughs> Keshan, how have you found it? Oh, I loved it. I loved uh, looking at this photo of a croissant in a tree. Yeah, kind of squinting a bit to see if I can ever see that as an iguana. Not really convinced. <laughs> I don't know. Was that the highlight of the podcast then, was it? <laughs> definitely. Goodness definitely. Right. Dreams about croissants <laughs> and iguanas. <laughs> Thanks very much again, guys. Thank you very much for listening. And um, we will see you in the next one. We should have like different voices for when we're talking, you know, in in it and out of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I, no. I've noticed you, Ketan, whenever jarring. we record. So we record and then you're like, okay, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> so you're like, you'd like to bring the voice <laughs> no, this down. Is my, uh, but, and I'm like, yeah. I know he wants to move on. I am an air hostess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Does that voice come Careless on? whisper just slides in. <laughs>